Hi and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm speaking to the IB English guys, otherwise known as Andrew Cohn and David Giles. Andrew and Dave are both English teachers at the International School of Bangkok and Moonlight as YouTubers in their spare time. Andrew and Dave's channel has grown far and wide in such a small amount of time, in no small part thanks to their engaging manner on camera and concise practical advice for students. We discuss the best text they've ever read, taught or been taught, their background in international teaching and what made them start a YouTube channel in the first place, which of the videos have garnered the biggest views and why they think that is, focusing on the individual oral specifically, what Andrew and Dave think are the most important aspects to prepare students for, whether they feel paper one is more challenging in language and literature or literature and why, what makes a good HL essay in their opinion, how their department approaches formative assessment given the need to offer students agency in terms of the text used in respective examinations and finally a selection of the text they currently use for the respective courses. This was easily one of the most engaging conversations I've had about the IBDP for some time and it was hard not to be buoyed by Andrew and Dave's positivity and clear love for the subject. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Okay, uh, Andrew, David, uh, I'll let you kind of fight over who kind of goes first in terms of answering these questions. But the first one, nice, easy one. Uh, what is the best text that you've ever read taught, or been taught in your life? You mind if I start with that one, Dave? Go for it. Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, probably the best text that I've taught and certainly one of the best texts that I've read is The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. And the funny thing to me about that text is I read that text. I tried to read it twice and failed. Uh, it was, I just found it difficult. I struggled with the nonlinear narrative. I just didn't have enough contextual background, I think, to handle that text. And then when I met David roughly 10 or 11 years ago, uh, he said, I love this book. I, I like to teach this novel. And I thought, oh no, here we go. Uh, but it was once I read it again and had David as a sort of a, a sounding board and a partner, someone to bounce ideas off. If I really did see the magic of the book and uh, the novel became something that I really enjoyed. Uh, I thought her writing style and just the character development, and of course, just some of the trauma and tragedy, but yet beautiful at the same time. So that sort of became my one of my all-time favorite novels to teach, one of my all-time favorite no novels that I've read. But I think it really speaks to the importance of collaboration because without David, I never mm. would have found the joy of that novel. So uh I guess that's another reason why I like Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, so uh, mine's mine's similar, actually. That my I I love teaching um, "Sing Unburied Sing" by Jesmyn Ward. It's a contemporary uh, text that was written uh, just a couple of years ago, and it was a it was a novel that um, a lot of my colleagues were reading and really liked. Andrew read it before me, and another colleague, uh, Maggie Hagen, she was reading it. So I read it, and I was, I just found it incredibly provocative and interesting. It had a lot of magic realism, and it talked a lot about systemic racism. It was really rooted in poverty and talked about drug addiction and topics that I thought were really important for kids to read about and talk about. Um, and I've really enjoyed, um, you know, I'm not an expert on that text. There's not, you know, lit charts and things like that so much. So it's been, um, but I really, I really have enjoyed teaching that text. It's been the last couple of years we've introduced that. 
Um, and I think the kids have really thought a lot about, about diversity and inclusion and equity. Um, and I think those are really important things to teach. So yeah, interestingly enough, both of those novels, which we are part of our menu that we teach, you know, they, they both talk about, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice. There's a lot of great things in both of those novels. I think they're really strong choices for any IB program. Yeah. Mm, I was considering doing the God of Small Things, I think next, next year. That is that. Yeah. I, I love that book. A student just returned that to me actually after I recommended it to them. Um, it's always a bit of an well, awkward, we can, uh, awkward recommend. Like, I'd be happy it? to share, we'd be happy to share our materials and we oh, could fantastic. just, you know, like it's, it's really a text that it's, I think it's fun to teach that, that novel because we both found it challenging and I know kids find it challenging, but when they get done, it's a great sense mm-hmm. of satisfaction. They just feel like, wow. And, and then a lot of kids would be like, that is the best, you know, most difficult yeah. text I've ever read. Yeah, and, I, I was a literature student for the last month. That's kind yeah. of the feeling. It really, it really yeah. elevates the class. I think. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm obviously speaking to you from uh, Hong Kong. You guys are in Bangkok. Like what's, what's your kind of respective background in, in international teaching? Um, and I suppose the reason that kind of prompted the interview was the fact that you guys started um, what is, might I say, like a brilliant, brilliant YouTube channel, um, the IB English guys. Um, so what, what, yeah, what are your respective kind of international teaching experiences and why did you start that channel together? Yeah. Great, a great question. Um, so uh, I was right after university, I was in the Peace Corps. So an international, like a volunteer program for two years um, from the US. And that sort of started me off just really um, being interested in just overseas living and teaching. I was a teacher in the Peace Corps a long time ago. And then I went back to Seattle for a little while, taught public school. And then I was always hungry just to go and, and be an overseas teacher. So I taught in Tanzania when I left Seattle um, loved that so much. And then I went to China and Guangzhou. And then finally, you know, one of my dream places to work was to work at international school, Bangkok. And I was lucky enough to, to score a job here. And I've been here 10 years. That's my quick sort of overseas international experience, but it's been an incredible career. I've really loved it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, mine is similar in nature. I think I developed a passion for travel in university. I know David, you studied abroad as well. That's sort of when I became interested in leaving the United States uh, and then, you know, after university, I had done some traveling, a lot of volunteer teaching along my travels. And, and during my travels, I really, uh, I teaching really resonated with me. I really gravitated toward teaching. And I decided to go back and do a master's. So uh, that's kind of, excuse me one sec. Yeah, that's kind of uh, what I'd done there. Um, in terms of starting the channel, uh, I think there are a lot of reasons why we started the channel. Um, I, I think one of the things that really inspired me or motivated me to, to do that is examining for the IB. I feel I felt that uh, during one of the recent sessions with the new course guide, the new curriculum, that uh, looking at the, specifically the IO, I felt that there were many candidates who were quite strong, but really just did not understand the requirements of the task. And whether that's of their own doing or you know maybe a misunderstanding by the teacher, there are many reasons why that could happen. But I felt that by putting out some content that really clearly uh, you know, explained in an engaging way that I could, we, we could help more students uh, achieve their goals. So that really was the reason why I wanted to start it. I thought, you know, David, we have 60, 70 kids that we're working with now, but I think we could actually impact thousands and kind of knock down the walls of the classroom by making this free and making this public. So that was sort of yeah. my, my reason for wanting to start the channel. And I think like Andrew and I've been teaching partners for a long time. And we like the more, like the more years we teach together, the more we're kind of just really in each other's classrooms all the time and 
designing lessons and units. So we were like, hey, let's let's create something. Let's do something together that's a project that we can really sink our teeth into. Do we want to go, you know, deliver workshops or what can we do professionally to really like engage with something and re-energize? And and this guy called me up late one night and said, there's nothing on the on YouTube for kids. There's nothing. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Let's do it. Um, and that's how it started. Yeah. yeah. And I think Chris also, you know, just the equity piece, you know, the, you know, we're at a very, very, we're privileged to be at this school and we're fully aware of how privileged we are, but you know, that shouldn't limit another student from having access to quality education and quality resources. So, you know, I, I thought just by, we thought just by kind of smashing the walls and just trying to reach out to as many as we could, that we, we would have the ability to do so. And it seems to be working out so far. Yeah, I didn't realize just how much um, we were going to be engaging with kids through comments and through, you know, it's great. And like meeting you. Um, no, honestly, like you think like you put things on on, on social media that it's but it's really uh, it's been fun. It's been really meaningful to just to connect with other teachers. And I feel like I'm part of a bigger network now. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. the the um, I remember someone particularly on, like I think on the equity point there with regard to IB, there's obviously hundreds if not thousands of international schools that do the IB around the world and I'm sure they're filled with like incredible teachers but I think it's interesting that like there's so many American schools now and like public schools or state schools that are now like taking on the IB and it seems to be that perhaps the the kind of the preparation that some of those staff are getting isn't sufficient to kind of like prepare kids um, um, for the IB all the time. I spoke to someone uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about extended essays and they said that like one of the issues with IB in the US is that a lot of US schools enforce the idea that they have to do like American history as an, uh, as an EE subject. And it was like an example of how maybe the IB was getting mis misapplied in, in, in certain schools, certainly not all of them in the US, but I think it's really great. You know, also, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, a lot, of, a lot of teachers had missed training as well due to yeah. COVID, right? But there, yeah. There's quite possible that there are some teachers out there teaching that have not been properly trained. So again, just trying to get as many resources out there as possible, I think, is, has been helpful for the person. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and it's and it, it, like you say, it is free. I mean, if you if you're willing to sit through what five seconds of an advert, like it's it's pretty invaluable information. Something that can kind of transform your writing or your, your your speaking from like a level four or five into like a level six or seven um on on the topic of like youtube videos that which which videos um have garnered the biggest views and why do you think that is i think that the ones that i'm noticing and you can chime in andrew is that it's just the ones that have discrete skills i think when when we're talking about like how to deliver an introduction or, you know, top 10 tips for the paper one, the ki kids want really like quick and they want concrete skills, discrete skills. And I think those have been really successful. Yeah. I think, uh, I agree with you. I think some videos that don't do as well are ones that are more literature specific. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I, I noticed that some of the poetry videos don't do as well. Uh, um, it makes me wonder if the lit students know that we have content on the channel for them as well. Uh, you know, it's difficult to, to reach the community, you know, because we're not like actively marketing ourselves, you know, so yeah. we're just sort of wondering when those students are going to stumble on and find our channel, because mostly I think it's Langlet right now that, yeah. that are that are engaging with our work.
And we, you know, we started as literature. I taught IB literature for, for, you know, like 12 years. So, I mean, that, that, I love that course as well. So we want it when we were designing it, we're like, Hey, let's make sure that we give the literature students some, and of course it's language and literature. So we need to be teaching literature for both courses. So we wanted to really pay attention to that, but I, I agree with you. Some of the other one, ones for literature have been less, you know, you know. Yeah. And some of the reason that videos don't get hits are, you know, I'm, I'm this, these are all new skills for us as well. You know, how to make the right thumbnail, how to write, yeah. the, put the right label. So we're acquiring just every day. I feel like we're picking up new skills and a lot of it's trial and error. Say, hey, that thumbnail, that one was a loser. Let's try something different next time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think the thumbnail actually is important. <laughs> yeah, it, it is such fun. Like, um, I think like Dave kind of mentioned there a moment ago, like a project to sink your teeth into. And it is, I think it's also really cool when you can have like a conversation with the students about that type of thing, because like their heroes or their idols or a lot of the people that they're engaging with on a daily basis are YouTubers or people on those platforms. And you can kind of talk about their, the, the thought process behind it and, and kind of poke fun at yourself of, of yourself in terms of the, yeah, the thumbnails you've used and, and things like that. Bring, bringing it back to um, IB and, and the IO, I think, which like Andrew mentioned before, you've obviously made quite a lot of videos now. And, and, and like you said, you're an examiner, you're a teacher and all these things. The IO to me seems to be one of these examinations that um, it has so many, well, my perception of it is it has so many moving parts and so many kind of expectations and stipulations. It's no wonder that students are looking for videos for support on it. But for you, what do you think are the most important aspects to prepare students for or for students to remember, I guess, with regard to the IO? Yeah, for me, I'm actually team leader in examining that component right now. Right. What I'm hearing, you know, the feedback I would like to give directly to students is students need to understand that you're responsible to talk about the work as a whole and the body of work as a whole with respect to the global issue. For whatever reason, I would say nearly half of the scripts that I'm listening to are not accomplishing that for whatever reason. Uh, and that of course is just absolutely just devastating to a student's score because they've essentially only done two fourths of the task uh, if they neglect those parts. So for me, uh, what I'm finding is that students that do successfully include all four parts are scoring just fine. Uh, the mm -hmm. kids who are suffering are the ones again, who are just missing some of the key parts. So again, that's a communication piece. I think, you know, through the YouTube channel, through your podcast, through other mechanisms, the more we can inform people about the need to do that. Hopefully we'll be able to close that, that glaring weakness in the near future. Mm. What do you think, Dave, in terms of? Yeah, the I, I mean, I was definitely going to, my first thing was, was understand those moving parts and really think about your, your structure and be clear on having that balance between those things. Like Andrew said, like, make sure the body of work gets discussed mm. and then like, again, to elevate your thinking and really like connect with the, the, the issue that you're talking about. So you understand it on the, on a deep level and you're able to talk about it, but it, it's, it is a really challenging um, task, right? Because it's 10 minutes when you think yeah. about all the things you need to do in 10 minutes. Um, I find it difficult to do that because I have so many things to say, you know? So, but you have to kind of pick and choose and, and you have to show your understanding of that whole novel yeah. So, so I would also encourage students that when choosing an extract, say from a novel or a play or whatnot, and then when you talk about the 
body of, or the work as a whole, rather, you should try to cover the entire novel. So if your extract came from the middle, why not look for the global issue in the beginning and the end as well? So you actually covered the entirety of the novel and presented yourself as an expert in the work. Uh, I think some students are just being very narrow in their choices and they show depth with a very small section of the work, but they really should be thinking about how can they really show that they're an expert of the entire work. Yeah. I, I, I do have sympathy with like certain teachers who, you know, I don't know what their teaching circumstances are. Maybe they're in the department of like two or three or like they, they, they don't have that kind of collegiality, but it does feel a little bit at the moment, like blink and you miss it with some of this stuff with regard to even, even the language that's being used, like the, the body. We used to have discussions at my old school where it was, does the body of work mean if we're doing Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I have to talk about like other books in his sort of like oeuvre. And it's like, you then have to go onto the Facebook groups and obviously someone will say, no, of course not. That's not realistic. And so I, yeah, I have sympathy with people, but that, that for me would be, that would also be my, my thing, the balance between um, obviously the literature and the language, but then within that, if, if it is a Lang Lit course, but um, then within that, the extract and the, the body of work. Yeah. Um, The thing I got from David was he says the global issue should be a repeatable phrase. And I think that's really important. You hear some really convoluted global issues that are actually quite insightful, but I can never repeat them back. I have to listen to the recording about five times before I can actually write it down myself. So we like to, we tell our students it should be a repeatable phrase. Yeah. I think, you know what, for us, what really worked was this was during, I think it was during COVID when it was first, uh, whenever it was, we, Maybe it was pre, it was pre COVID. We just um, we did our own. We sat down and we're like, we got to do this. Like the first the first you know year of the of the new course. We said, man, this is a tough thing. Let's do it ourselves. So we went through the whole process from start to finish. Yeah. That was invaluable. Like, and it it was you know, and it really made me understand. Oh wow, I'm going. I'm doing too much of this, not enough of that. And, that helped. I don't, I think a lot of teachers are maybe reluctant to try that, but it yeah. really, it's critical really helps. I, yeah. yeah. We do that process and then showing the kids our metacognitive process, like here mm-hmm. are all of our notes, you know, we have 10 pages of notes. Here's what we did. And here's our recording. We give ourselves maybe a six, our first time Yeah. Uh, you know, and, just, and then showing the reflective piece and then, you know, tweaking things and that's Yeah. Doing it yourself is critical. We do all, we do all the tasks. We threw it. We, yeah. We started, we threw some of those things on the channel too. We were like, let's try it. Let's do this ourselves and just give this a try and like try the IO and let's take it apart. And just to, for them to see us working through it, you know, um, and to think about ways that we could make it better too. So. Yeah, I can't echo that enough. Like that, that's such a chastening moment when you do it yourself and you're like, oh my God. Um, like you've gone over time or you kind of get your, your you get tongue tied or something like that. Um, when uh, it turned into like a different part of the course, I guess. Um, do you think um you, you said there before, Dave, that you, you used to teach literature and Andrew, I'm sure you've got like experience of it too. Do you think I've always thought that paper one is harder in Lang Lit than in Lit? I've all, I've always just thought for, for a number of different reasons, but I'm interested. I'm keen to get your perception on like which one do you think is more approachable? I don't want to use the word easy, but which which one is kind of more um yeah, like um which one's more challenging? Oh man. Sure. I'll take a stab at it. You know, for me, the Langlet is more challenging because you're working with multimodal texts that require a far broader skill set. I think literature is quite, I don't want to say limited, but you're doing the same task, the same skills multiple times, where I think when you bring in the visual component, 
or, uh, you know, uh, and you think about how a piece is structured on the page, there's just other moving parts. And, and for me, it's a very authentic task. I mean, we encounter these things all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's something that, uh, I find it more challenging, but I also find it more applicable to my daily life. You know, I, I think I'm, I think I do mental paper ones every day when I look at something quickly, break something down and, and pick out the parts. So I, I think it is more challenging, but certainly very helpful for the kids as they move further into life. Yeah, I think I think it, it it completely depends on that given exam. Sometimes the you know sometimes when I think about some of the IB poems that were thrown at literature students, they're extremely complex and 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 you know they take multiple readings to really understand and mm. and try to make an interpretation. However, I think also like Andrew said, a Lang Lit student needs to be adept at writing. Uh, sorry, responding to such a vast array of text types. So you have to walk in with a toolbox for every different text type, you know, reading a speech is completely different than reading a brochure. And you have to have a completely different set of terminology to talk about those texts. Um, That's hard. Sure. Yeah. Not not to mention, you know, a political cartoon or, you know, panels from a comic. I mean, those are completely different things. Yeah, I did. I did promise you kind of at the top of the interview or before the interview started that I wouldn't ask you any tangential questions, but uh, I am going to. Um, You've made like lots of you made loads and loads of brilliant videos with regard to how to approach, you know, a given text type. Um, Do you feel like there are certain text type which are within well, obviously there are certain text types which are definitely within the purview of like an English student or an English teacher. Do you feel like all those suggested text types that IB offer up are the business of an English course? Was there any kind of where, you know, you were breaking it down for the videos or you've taught it in class and you've kind of got a nagging doubt in the back of your mind, like, I'm not sure why, I'm not sure how this stands up against like poetry or, or you know, on, on in the literature. You take a stab at that because we have this conversation with a colleague of ours, Connor ah. Duffy. I hope you're listening all the time. So I want you to respond to Chris and Connor Duffy. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is the uh, the a modern day a modern day English teacher is in many ways needs to needs to look at media text. Right, we're becoming media teachers. We're looking at media literacy. So in some ways, I would say. Yeah, it is in our purview because we do need to teach 21st century text and 21st century reading and writing is going to be online and reading a film, reading a television transcript, all the things that we're we're encountering. But it stretches the skill set of teachers, right? Because, and I think this is why some English teachers are reluctant um, and have been reluctant to embrace language and literature because it's it's it, it pushes us out of our comfort zone. I'll be honest. I didn't know how to read and deconstruct a comic until I came in, until I was like, you're the Lang Lit guy. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to learn how to read a comic. So I, I did what? Yeah, time to go get Scott McCloud's book and read that yeah. thing cover and figure out yeah, what's going and figure, on. And then know? learn the terminology. And then I'm like, oh, I really love reading comics now. And this is really interesting. There's so much more to this than I thought. Just like reading poetry, um, yeah. you know, requires that sort of layer of understanding. And I, I like that. So Sure. Um, and to build on that, I mean, sure, I like to take photos. I'm an amateur photographer, but now when I teach, I have to teach photography. So I have to, you know, I'll go to the photography teacher and reach out and say, hey, you know, I need some skills. I need some resources. Or, you know, I have a student that has picked a painter for their body of work, you know, as one of our cho- out of, off our menu. And, and then I have to talk to the, the, you know, the visual arts teacher and get those skills. So I think it, it's good in the sense that it fosters a really good collaborative spirit where you have to interact with other teachers because, 
There's no shame in saying, look, I don't have that skill set. I'm okay with that, but I know I need it. And I have to go own that and go get those skills. So it's been, it's been challenging, but it's also, I mean, we're lifelong learners in the process. So that's been a good thing too. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with you on like the photography point on the cartoon point. I feel like, yeah, I've had that exact same experience actually. And I don't think there was any graphic novels in my house before like the year 2017. And now there must be like 20. (laughs) And now I'm buying a new one a week trying to find the next hottest one, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I I think like in that, um, I interviewed like Brad Philpott a few weeks ago. He had some good suggestions. I went out and bought them straight away. Um, So yeah. And and again, with the art teacher thing as well. Yeah. One, one of the students wanted to do, I can't remember if it was like Degar or something like that, but yeah, it is fascinating um, in, in that respect. Um, Moving on again through the sort of the, the, the pantheon of uh, IB uh, assessments. Um, The HL essay, I think is a little bit more sort of, I think it's probably the assessment that it doesn't really matter where you've taught English or any language in the world. Um, it's the assessment that you're going to recognize the most. It's it's quite similar to every, what every exam body has, but what, what do you think makes a good HL essay um, for either Langlet or Lit in your opinion? Uh, um, I think just having a very clear and focused line of inquiry. I know that sounds so obvious, but just that starting point, I because I just I just examined for the HLSA, and I think just having that strong literary aspect that you're focusing. I did the I did the HLSA for literature, but the same thing for uh, for Langlet. Just having a linguistic or literary aspect you're focusing on, and making sure that your paper, your line of inquiry has that sort of literary lens or linguistic lens that you're that you're using. Otherwise, I think. The danger is it becomes very descriptive and summary, and the analysis just is false flat. So I found many papers I read just lacked a very clear, focused line of inquiry. So then that's just your starting place. And if that's if your starting place isn't really in good shape, then the whole paper really ends up being quite superficial. Um, and then I think the other, like you said, it's a very traditional paper that that teachers are are well versed in. Um, but they need to think about what's my, what's my main claim? What's my argument? What's my focus? And then how can I organize my paper around that line of inquiry? It is a traditional essay in the sense, uh, in many ways, but of course, for this piece, you don't need all those secondary sources, all Correct. those citations. Mm-hmm. So I think there is some misconception there. It's not a, a 4,000 word EE, it's a 1500 word HLE, and it does look slightly different in that regard. So I think some kids get into trouble by trying to force in other sources. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And that's not really a necessary part of the assessment. It can be, but it's not a, it's not a requirement of the assessment. Yeah. Yeah. That's superb advice. Very good. Thank you. Um, so I think you, you obviously kind of, with regard to the YouTube channel itself, that's almost something you might expect students to be doing when they're, they might have like an important um, internal assessment coming up within the school, or even when they're cramming in, 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 in the run-up to the, the summatives in, in May or June or um, whenever they happen to be. Um, but within your school and within like your kind of teaching practice, how do you approach formative ass- assessment, like little practices here and there, given the need to offer the student's agency in terms of the texts they use in the respective examinations? How do you kind of approach, like, if you do hit a bit of a, um, I don't know, like a marker in a particular unit and you feel like I want to test what they know, um, what does that look like in your in your course? In, um, in, sure. In uh, should I take a step? 
Yeah. Yeah. We were just actually working on a, a unit today. We were sort of revamping our, our cartoon unit. And, you know, we, when we teach the discrete skills, of course, you want to zero in on one cartoonist, uh, but then, you know, we sort of model and the t- kids practice with us, but, you know, for their formative assessments, we offer them a choice board where they can go ahead and, you know, here are six other cartoonists and we've curated some of their work. You can, you know, let's do a gallery. Let's put some up around the room. Let's go on a gallery walk and, and see which ones you like. You know, if you pick one you like, go to, now here's a choice board, confirm that you like it. Then you can work with that. So you've had some agency and autonomy in making choices. You can pick the cartoon within the body. If you don't like that one, if you want to add to that body of work, you can. So we really, we try to model first and then let the students make some choices on their own. And of course, anything that they've chosen and worked on, we've curated, we can, we were working and conferencing with the kid. That's a taught text. I've worked mm-hmm. with, I've worked with that cartoonist in class with that, with that child. That is a taught text. And I think people need to become comfortable with that. Yeah, I think this, yeah, it just adds so much more robust variety. Um, and I'm seeing more and more teachers do that. I think that's really great. Yeah, just breaking things down into small tasks. Like if you're, you know, you don't need to write the entire paper. Maybe it's just having the kids write an outline and present the outline orally on Flipgrid or something like that. Or, you know, just find ways that the kids can practice these skills or just working on a particular way to analyze, you know, an, uh, an excerpt from a text and, and, and talking about that skill and then having them practice in their learner portfolio. I think the learner portfolio is really like something we ask the kids to go to almost every day where they're just doing formative practice, you know, that then we can then look at and, and, you know, yeah. have them practice skills. I think for me, I don't really differentiate between, I mean, of course I understand formative is summative, but I, I don't want to emphasize that in my class. I, the less I can have kids talking about the word assessment, the better off I am. I find that I get a better result for my kids. If we're just constantly putting in a good effort, whether it's, you know, a small practice or a larger piece and, you know, and not really dwelling on, oh, is this, is this going to be assessed? You know, we just, Mm. we're working to get better. We're working to improve our skills in my class. We're not aiming at assessments. We're working to become better readers and writers every day. Yeah. I love having the, I love oral, like if I'm getting kids comfortable speaking about a text or literature, it's just, I think so fun to have kids pair up, you know, they've worked on different texts or extracts. They've had a chance to talk to some others maybe about it. Then they pair up and they, I give them okay, you've got like three minutes to then share, you know, and present to your peers. So they're kind of used to doing that. They're used to talking about a text, but they're not, they're not all caught up in, you know, worrying about being graded so much. Right. Or today you're going to do a three minute flip grid and one of your peers is going to come in and give you feedback. The peer, their peers understand the rubric just as well as we do most of the time. So they can mm-hmm. give, they can give the right feedback, you know, yeah, nine times out of 10. So, you know, it doesn't always have to be us giving the feedback. There are plenty of experts in the room in their own way. Yeah, you kind of touched on something there, Andrew, that's quite interesting, I think, in terms of like a big um, sort of issue, contentious issue around a whatever kind of you want to include with regard to, you know, the IO or the HLS or something. A, it has to have been taught in class, but B, it has to be students' personal choice. And it almost makes me think that the people, well, almost certainly it's multiple people making choices at like IB headquarters, but it's almost as if like I can imagine that meeting happening and the first person saying something like, I definitely think it should be about student agency. It should be about letting students do whatever they want to do. And almost a second voice comes up and says, 
hey, but make sure it was taught in the class. And, and I've seen that kind of that idea interpreted in so many different ways from like the extreme of um, like certain workshop leaders or, or teachers who've purportedly like spoken to workshop leaders say, no, it has to be like an entire body of work, didactic, not didactically, but explicitly taught. It can't have been all the way up to... Um, it can be like you ask students to go away over the home uh, over the weekend, find an example, let's say, of like a, a graphic novel or a series of cartoons, and they come in and they present it to the class, and there's a discussion, and then that's and that's it's it's interesting, isn't it, how the new that new course is implemented? I really like the teachers. I think like yourself or yourselves um, who kind of take it and think, okay, well, what does that mean in context for? our students and our pedagogy and what we believe for education. I think that's the best way to do it and not to be kind of handcuffed to like guess, guessing what, you know, you don't want to fall foul of the IB or something like that. When I do think like I spoke to Guillermo, who's the language a manager, I don't know, a year ago, more than a year ago for this. And he was like, so laid back about stuff like that. He said, listen, it's a guideline. And yes, okay, if you want me to be a bit more specific, then maybe I would do it like this. But don't worry so much about, you know, it's, it's up for interpretation. We just want the there to be equity. We want it to be fair. And I think it's within the teacher's own remit to decide how that kind of happens. So that's really cool to know that um, that you do it in that way where it, it's a lot more student, a lot more student-centered. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think... Um... You know, it, it's a balance, right? You don't want to, I think just having the kids just go internet surfing and finding their yeah. one-off text is not, is definitely not the plan. Yeah. So that's why I think like us doing some curation and some some exploration, but then get, letting the kids do that too. I yeah, think so we've, we've gone through a hundred cartoonists. We think these 10 are, you know, worthy of exploration, you yeah. know? So here you go, you know, now what do you like of these 10 cartoonists? Yeah, I like that. Because they don't, they don't actually have the skill set to, to differentiate what makes us, I mean, some do, but it's much harder for them. Some of the, my best IOs this year, uh, I have to say, were from, from bodies of work that were part of that student choice, choice board. Mm. Uh, they were powerful. And I just knew that, like, it, I knew going into this year's IO season, I wanted to have more variety of bodies of work so the kids can really create their best IO. Because the IO is just, is why it's, you know, up to them to choose. Yeah. So the more kind of opportunities they had to sort of mix and match things, I think it provided really good options. I was really pleased with our IO. Yeah, it was cool. It was so year. fun to listen to them, you know, and just revisit these these bodies of work. Um, I liked it. Um, if I had chosen all of them and, and sort of didactically or just like explicitly taught, it would have been so limited. I would have been limited by, you know, maybe six bodies of work or something. And I just, I didn't like that. Well, student engagement would have been limited too. And then, (laughs) you know, they, yeah, they don't like old, what we some like. Some old ball guys picking all the all the text in the whole class <laughs> away, man. Yeah. yeah. I did. I, I do feel like I made that mistake though. I think in the first year of the course, I tried to make it as wide as possible. But the feedback that I well, my feedback to myself was that I noticed that yeah, the global issues were so similar and the text was so similar, or like the, the comparisons were so similar because there wasn't that range of possibilities. And I think in that kind of anxiety to make sure that I was following rules, um, 
yeah i kind of i had to try and learn from that mistake but this is this tends to be my favorite question i guess because it's it's all about kind of magpieing other people's fantastic ideas but um what the the last question is like what text do you currently use for the respective courses whether it's lit or or lang lit and i guess it's it's probably too much to ask of you to list out every single thing but um are, are there any kind of bodies of work language wise or literature that you do that you do teach within the courses that you think are particularly popular or innovative or that you just you really enjoy teaching that's a really good question um you know, we, we kind of break things down by skills, right? So we're able to substitute things in and out all the time. So for example, if we want to teach the skills of documentary and we want to look at audio tracks, graphic tracks, visual tracks, whatnot, you know, and going through the skill set, I, uh, I really enjoyed teaching, uh, not teaching, I enjoyed working with breaking boundaries for the kids. I think it was a great opportunity for them to talk about the environment. And we had some, you know, Yes, we're in IB English, but we don't have to talk about assessment all the time. I mean, it just generated some really provocative discussion about how we feel about the current state of our planet. So I thought that generated some great discussion. And, you know, other students were watching the documentary 13th by DuVernay. Mm-hmm. You know, kids, you know, once you once you go through something together and get the skills out, you know, and then it's a matter of supporting kids on their journey. Right. So uh, they, they chose some great stuff to watch. Yeah, you know? I agree. Um I, I really like teaching drama. So I, I've, you know, I teach death and the maiden, which I know is a really popular lit text. And I think that that text is really, uh, kids have really enjoyed that. They find it provocative. They find it interesting. There's a lot of connections to, you know, um, gender and power, but also, you know, human rights. Um, so that that's been a text that's been really successful. Um, and, you know, it, and just thinking about, we, we had a whole, this whole unit on nature where we talked about breaking boundaries we started doing like poetry by Mary Oliver, which was super accessible and very easy to read. But it, for our SL kids, they really enjoyed that. Um, and that was a poet I never taught before. Um, yeah, and we spent days like going outside, taking photos and doing pastiches of Mary Oliver, you know, just because the written task is gone doesn't mean we can't write our own poems, mm. you know? So, you know, we still really value those aspects of the, of the old course. Yeah. We're Today we're going out to take photos and we're writing poetry and this is not part of the assessment model, but it's part of you as a human being. And we're doing this today. What shocked and they, me, the kids buy in. They yeah, love it. What shocked me as well is that we st- we did some writing, some excerpts from Henry David Thoreau. So we didn't read all of Walden or like we, we were really just sort of, dipping into the writings of Thoreau and, and reading some of his work and the kids loved that. And it was, that was hard reading, right. Compared to Mary Oliver, that was really tough sledding, but they did great. And I had, I had three or four, I had two kids choose um, Thoreau for their IO and it shocked me. I couldn't believe it. I thought, wow, you know, you, uh, and they, you know, did research on him and did all kinds of, and had really good things to say. So that was really, that was yeah. quite fun. Here's one you can't use, but you probably, our students are particularly our Thai boys, like the, 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 op-eds of a, a local op-ed writer in the Bangkok Post, a woman named Parita Wangkiat. Yeah. And, you know, and then we had, we looked at political cartoons from a local uh, artist as well. So some of those kids that, you know, are really, you know, they love Thailand. They're, they're very, you know, they're in the ROTC program. They're, you know, they, they wanted to stay in Thailand. So that was, that was mm-hmm. very successful as well. I would encourage all teachers to see you know, who, who's writing the editorials in your, in your paper, in your country and give them a try because kids want to talk about that. So one one area where where that we want to work on actually just like be good to pick your brain is thinking about um, dystopian fiction or science fiction. I mean, I've, we've taught you know 1984 and Brave New World and some of these sort of classic texts, 
but we're looking for something, um, you know, impactful and just, you know, literary that we could. Um, so that that's been a constant search. We've yeah, read. We've about, been we've this read about, close to Oryx and Crake many times. Yeah. And we never pulled the trigger. <laughs> we've yeah, read, we've good read, book. We probably yeah. read twenty books, like in the search for the perfect book that has. Because I think we need to do more science, technology, and and that's that's an area yeah. to work on. Um, you've probably read these already, and um, it's really interesting that you say dystopia because I think that's something that comes up all the time in Hong Kong at the moment with regard to like the 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 the, the government and the restrictions and the the national security law and stuff like that, like. The foundation that I work for doesn't really have a stance on it. It's not like we we have to abide by it, but it's also like, is it a great idea to transgress it? But in preparation for, uh, not necessarily IB, but we teach it at like year nine. Um, I kind of tried to read um, around the subject. I don't know if you ever read uh, Layla um, by, uh, I've got it behind me actually, um, by... Uh, it's, got red, it's got like a red banner on it. Yeah, I know. I have yeah, that. Praya yeah. Gakbar. Yeah. So Layla is, um, uh, I'm assuming he's um, uh, an Indian writer um, because it, well, it's based in India and it's all to do with kind of like um, the caste system, but it's, it's this dystopian in the sense that the, the, this city starts to get walled off. And it's all about kind of, again, like power and, and equity and, and obviously caste, so ethnicity and stuff. That's one. There is a Chinese one. And I think if I were to move out of Hong Kong, um, you know, I've got two young sons who um, um, kind of trying to kind of bring them up as, uh, you know, um, mixed cultural heritage kind of kids. And um, I, I would always want to kind of teach the fat years. Uh, which is kind of about it's reimagining um, China in a dystopian future. That's a really good one, um, but the writer's name escapes me now. But the most, I feel like the 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 um, there's there's one that's doing the rounds at the minute within IB schools. It's like the new darling of IB schools, the Memory Police. I don't know. If yeah, the by Japanese one. writer. I read that. Yeah. I, you know, for me, I didn't. I didn't think that my kids would engage with it enough. No, I, I mean it was good, but I, I. It wasn't one of one I wanted. It wasn't one of my selections, right? Yeah, it's it's. I think it's very, it's it's very kind of um, subtle in 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 the kind of message that it's trying to send and stuff. And I enjoyed it, but yeah, it's one of those where I, like would not teach. So, but Layla was really good and quite accessible, but very adult in some of the kind of scenes that, that occurs in that. And like I said before, like the fat years is also very good, but, um, well, yeah, good. thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. I wrote that down. I'm going to definitely check that out. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. Um, from, from a, um, yeah, from, from, well, from a personal point of view. Yeah. The, the, the only thing that remains for me to say is like, thank you very much. Obviously for giving up um, your time today to speak to me, but also I think in terms of the output, um, that you guys have gone out. I remember when I think my partner came home and said, um, oh, there's these guys making making videos uh, for IB. They're really good, blah, blah, blah. And I think I looked you up and I think you had you guys had like 90 subscribers, 100 subscribers or something like that. And like, um, because I was making sort of like, you know, YouTube videos here and there at the time, I was like, oh, good on them. They've got like 90 subscribers already. It takes quite a long time for those who don't know to get to that. And then almost kind of overnight, it was like 500, 1,000, 2,000. And that's really testament maybe to the the demand of, of people out there who, who, who want IB instruction. But I think it's more so because 
you're putting stuff out there that's exceptional in terms of instruction. It's really short to the point. It's, it's accurate. It's insightful. It's, it's all of those things. And I think um, just listening to your answers today, it, it's clear that like not only is your level of knowledge like so deep, but you're incredibly concise in the way that you're communicating it. So yeah, your students in school must be very lucky, but also anyone who kind of subscribes to the channel is very lucky as well. So thank you on, on both parts. Chris, that's a really kind thing to say. So we'd like to thank you as well. We've been following your work as well. We have a lot of respect for what you've done. And when you messaged us to come on the podcast, I thought it was a great opportunity, not only to to get our message out there, but to meet you. And it's been fun meeting you. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to crossing paths with you at a workshop or at Hong Kong sometime soon. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I, I really enjoyed today. It's fun to, it's fun to just meet another educator in Hong Kong and, and just have a chat about, about, about teaching.